Brake Fix's History of Motorsports series is brought to you in part by the International Motor Racing Research Center, as well as the Society of Automotive Historians, the Watkins Glen Area Chamber of Commerce, and the Argetsinger family. James Miller's engagement with Formula One includes chatting about race strategy with Nicky Lauda at the 1977 U.S. Grand Prix, where Lauda won his second world championship. Now it involves at-home viewing of real-time, in-car camera images on a flat-screen TV. Has Formula One left behind its gritty, dangerous, and somewhat esoteric past to become a cross between the World Cup and Disneyland? Think Miami. How much of its new global popularity can be summed up as, perhaps merely, media spectacle? Dr. Miller is Professor Emeritus of Communications at Hampshire College. He has studied new media as a Fulbright researcher in Paris and a visiting professor at MIT's Media Lab. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we get to the presentations. And the first one is Formula One from Circus to Media Spectacle. Jim Miller will be our presenter. And let me get his program up. All right, Jim Miller, folks. Well, I'm a little more nervous than I expected to be after Don said that an academic can hope for eight or ten people to take an interest. <laughs> so, I'd like to start by expressing my pleasure in noting that there'll be two or three other presentations today and tomorrow concerning media and motorsports. So let's add that to uh, Don's list of future discussion topics. I may be discussing something that's obvious to most of us in, in this room, but I'd like to take a first stab at describing it systematically and then offer some preliminary analysis. It's really a first draft of a, what I'm discovering to be a really rich subject that I hope to develop further, so please help me. In his remark, Braun is writing in the introduction of the authorized 70th anniversary Formula One book written by Morris Hamilton. So we should take his comments as the official word. Gao was speaking informally in an interview. But I think the common takeaway from both remarks is that intentional fundamental change is underway in F1 with very specific objectives. At the same time, there's a perceived risk of alienating already contented Formula One fans. But I want to argue here that there's something bigger and maybe unexpected, in fact, with greater consequences at play. So let's begin by looking at a casual variety of indications that F1 is becoming a media spectacle. Now, I can't help but make an aside. The presentation of drivers, I think, is a critical element of the F1 media spectacle. You know, Max versus Netflix, and now it's Max versus, who is it? Oh, Sky, and then Ricardo's travails. What's developing with drivers, and apparently appealing to many new audience members, is pretty close to reality television, which, as you know, mixes factual programming with subgenres like game shows, travelogues, talent competition, fly-on-the-wall documentaries, creating what's called a fame cycle for the individuals involved. This oversharing regarding drivers includes the mob of fans in the paddock that you saw at the Mexican Grand Prix recently. And it seems that half of Martin Brundle's gridwalk interviews are with celebrity friends of drivers. There's also a category that might 
be even larger still that the BBC, for example, calls factual entertainment. And then I think the media net has gotten so broad that there's an in-depth profile of Toto Wolf in the current issue of what magazine? The New Yorker. So uh, let's begin, though, by establishing a baseline for change, a past that people affectionately call the F1 circus. What might they mean? Actual circuses were itinerant examples of live art, according to a British historian. They were sideshows on the way to the main event in the famous three rings. Think about track design. Critically, Helen Stoddard says that this is a really pungent quote. The circus promotes itself as a public fantasy, a space of exceptionalism, escape, and danger where the rules that seem to govern the world outside have no currency. F1 was informal, even a bit amateurish, with gentlemen team owners, a do-it-yourself atmosphere, shoestring operations that included very limited driver's salaries. So Phil Hill reports that Ferrari never gave him a salary. He only took a share of the start and finish money. And of course, all of that was against the genuinely mortal danger of every race. For my purposes, the circus was the 60s through the 80s. Now, on our last gathering here, I mentioned to Duke that I had come to several GP races here. When was that? In the 70s. Ah, the golden days, he said. He's not the only one who might think that way. This is an image from the uh, center's own website. This is 1972 or 3. But beyond that, people looking back in time have characterized Watkins Glen as something special, and I think very much like the circus that I'm trying to describe, which to me hints at the possibility of making Watkins Glen a kind of in-depth case study, a baseline for comparison. There were lots of things that went, oh, how did that get in there? Actually, I think the year before they uh, sacrificed a Greyhound bus. That's why the famous bog came to an end. But that was part of the circus atmosphere, for sure. Now, another way, more formally, of identifying the nature of the circus was a much smaller scale with respect to race numbers and a relative lack of media attention. So here you can see how few the races were compared to today. An early look at New York Times coverage shows very few articles about Formula One in their sports pages. The television story is a bit more complicated, and it goes farther back in time than I realized, but we must remember that early on, American cable television didn't have near the penetration rate that it has now, and some of these channels were premium, meaning you had to pay extra to get them. And then, of course, many of us remember the NBC coverage as being three talking heads in a studio saying obvious things about the global television feed. Maybe this is a, a record of slowly increasing coverage in the realm of television, but mostly I think it's, it's pretty limited. Obviously, the circus left town in uh, January of 2017 when Liberty bought Formula One and immediately began a cascade of significant changes, and here are just a few of them. Media-related changes are very significant and involve big players in that industry, which I think underscores the seriousness of intent and the very substantial capacity to invest in those changes. So here's a sketch of the principal media organizations involved 
with respect to television in the United States. And you can see that Liberty Media is, strangely, the smallest fish in this pond. So, okay, imagine you're accepting this contrast that I'm trying to draw between the circus and the spectacle. What, after all, is a media spectacle? Well, I would say that it's a hallmark of our time, and it has these broad conceptual categories, which we could talk about at length, but we don't have time for that. So I'll just say that global scale is really important. It means world circulation. Although it's American-inflected, the media spectacle has been adopted to local conditions in a way that I think has created a nearly universal multimedia form. These things take place because they're driven by a search for profit by and large. Producers, distributors, advertisers, they're all engaged in a quintessential example of late capitalism, commodification, market oligopolies, datification. But that's complicated by media spectacles, undeniable spectacles, like Queen Elizabeth's recent death and funeral. That was not about profit-making, and that conceptually needs to be clarified or reconciled in some way. So I just comment on the side about that. Then finally, it's very clear that digital media are the sine qua non. There's even the idea of media logic in which increasingly events are designed to conform to the demands of media technologies. Well, okay, so what? What are the consequences of such a change happening? Well, I would say there are two basic interpretations. One says... This is just another step down a glorious road, and there's more to come. And there's another which I'm going to embrace, which is more skeptical, and it sees this as a kind of acme or peak moment in the development of Formula One. And we all know if we walk across the terrain locally that when you hit the peak, the other side is descent. So what could that mean? Why would I believe that such interesting developments have this, let's call it, negative consequence. Well, I think there are strong headwinds blowing. Here are a couple. When you have a four-time world champion making such critical remarks, that gets people's attention. And of course, as with the, um, the coming World Cup, charges of greenwashing often respond to attempts to address climate change by race and other organizers. And there's cost. The Andretti seem to be frozen out whereas the two German manufacturers have been welcomed in. What's that about? There's the larger cultural issue of younger people being less interested in automobiles and more in mobility itself. Uh, what could that mean? And then I think, really interestingly, there's the conflicting interests at root among these very complex relationships among stakeholders. These are all things that I think that could put a break on what's developing and turn it into something else. Okay, what happens next then, if, in fact, my call that a prediction comes true? Well, here's my current thought. There'll be racing, but no races. And to make sense of that, let's look at Jean Baudrillard's scheme of three levels of reality. So we have primary experience, which, which is what's going on in this room. We're all present. We smell the coffee. We're sitting next to other human beings. There's the representation that's now streaming to the globe and uh, amounts to a kind of peephole observation of what's actually happening here. And lastly is this new development that Baudrillard called hyperreality, in which 
new digital media allow the construction of a, call it an event, that never occurred. Right? Think about anim 3D animated films, for example, as, a, as a, an instance. With that in mind, I might suggest that, like Facebook, which has now become meta, Formula One might move into a realm where racing, which can be highly individualized, tailored to me, I might be involved in a race. And remember, earlier we saw how Formula One itself is promoting simulations and video game kinds of engagements. I might be having my own Formula One in which I'm the team manager and you're doing something else entirely and we're both in very different physical places. Right? A possibility. Does it mean that there'll be no primary site where we can smell the unhealthy fumes and hear the wonderful engine sounds that damage our hearing? Yes, why not? And here are some examples of things that are already happening that have that quality of reenactment, even period clothing, in very carefully defined spatial places, right? Vintage auto racing and, of course, Goodwood. They're about nostalgia. They have no practical utility. They're pleasure-filled. Another example would be, and I think this is a very important, the various kinds of automobile clubs. And I mentioned PCA because I'm familiar with it. People come together physically. You're bombarded with um, material publications and stuff online. You go to events that are close to other people, creates a community. You meet, you meet people directly and become friends. Why not have this kind of event happening to the side of the hyper-real racing environment? But frankly, I think the best example of how that might take place with respect to Formula One is horses. At the turn of the century, there were a million and a half horse-drawn carriages built in the United States, and there were something like 20 million horses, and we know how that turned on a dime. It transformed very quickly, and yet, today, how many horses are there in America? Seven and a half million. The horse industry claims it's worth $120 billion a year. So maybe the future of F1 portends a kind of highly specialized reenactment along the lines of dressage, where skills are exhibited that yesterday were just everyday activities. We could resurrect the 70s right here at the Glen. Now, final words, and uh, I'm grateful for these. Just the other day, the uh, CEO of Disney described the principal corporate strategy as combining the physical environment of things like cruises and theme parks with this immaterial realm of movies and animations and characters and so forth, somehow bringing them together as a combined experience for their customers. And lastly, a driver at the turn of the century who observed something special about the United States as a, as a market, if you will, for Formula One racing. And it makes you think that maybe the seeds for the Formula One media spectacle were germinating all those 20-some years ago at the very same time when digital media were emerging. And with that, I'll stop. Thank you. So do we have time for Q&A? Okay, please. And again, I request your critical comments to help me develop this. I'm less interested in, in the esports the e realm as a, a lure for potential drivers than I am as creating a, a kind of an alter, alternative world that might replace the Formula One media spectacle, which replaced the circus. 
because of some of the headwinds that I was trying to describe. So yes, I think the expansion of the new audiences globally have been all about younger generations who knew nothing. But again, I would say, maybe overstating it a bit, in the terms of a kind of reality television. I mean, think of how drivers use social media, which I'm sure they're required to do by their contracts. Drive to survive type of programs? Will that be just to Formula One? I think we have an answer. The road to the championship and what they're doing is very similar to what Netflix is doing with Formula One. They're going behind the scenes at the shops, at the races, and they're making NASCAR seem very real. So you're with the drivers at home during the week when they're taking their kids to school, and then you're with the crew at the track on Sunday as they're working on the cars. I don't think it's getting, pardon the pun, the traction that the Netflix program has with Formula One. Maybe it has to do just with the culture of Formula One being so much, I guess, more exotic than the culture of NASCAR. But the program was being streamed on YouTube with each weekly episode. The ratings have dropped so much that YouTube has dropped it. It kind of gives you a sense. The Netflix program is flourishing and the NASCAR program is floundering. That's really interesting to know. Uh, that cultural comparison might be, might be very important, plus the global aspect of Formula One. I, I do know that other sports are planning to do these kinds, you know, like tennis, to do these kinds of things. You know, how long that kind of proliferation of a particular way of constructing a sport can continue and be popular and so forth. Someone else. Someone give me a hard time. Why is this a stupid idea? I won't forget who you are, by the way. Okay, Joe just raised his hand. I guess my biggest question right now is, you mentioned various other kinds of motorsport and presentations of motorsport as being the potential future, but really we face at the same time an extraordinary, shall we say, movement against what motorsport generally represents. And I'm wondering how you feel about the ability of motorsport to survive the influx of um, electric automobiles and where kids don't want to get in their car anymore because they, want, because they want to be on the cell phone talking about the challenges to automobile racing other than the one type you mentioned, vintage racing, which is very popular. Can motor racing really survive with those kinds of headwinds? So my glib answer, Joe, would be that that's part of the transition to racing without races. We talk about the transition to autonomous vehicles and uh, all electric vehicles and so on. Well, that transition is so complex for all of these things. How long will it take? I mean, you would have to rework much of the established mobility system in order to have autonomous vehicles on any scale. Will that be in our lifetimes or ever? I think that motorsports in general are in trouble, again, for some of the reasons I tried to suggest. And I think that maybe having you know, a kind of virtual experience replacing it based on, as we've seen, a kind of global stimulation of interest in international settings is not an unreasonable thought. And frankly, I should add to that, if somebody like me is having this odd but I think potentially accurate perception, you can bet that these big media firms are thinking along the same lines and preparing grounds for it. So they would be part of the engine of that transition away from actual racing, possibly. Someone else? 
I would be eager to hear from someone who challenges some aspect of this. Doesn't some of what you're, you're driving at depend on just the, the age of the, uh, of the people? And my generation, uh, shall I say race fans, concentrate a lot on the cars, but the people who watch the cars in the 30s, 40s, and 50s are dying off. The younger generation doesn't seem to be interested in seeing the old-timers run very much. It's only the old-timers that want to see that run. So this is perhaps a natural progression of the age of the people. Yeah, and I would add to that, Don and I were talking yesterday about Hagerty. They've transformed their business model, let's call it, in just the last three or four years with the stated goal of engendering car culture so it doesn't die off with those of us who are not, no longer young. Again, another place to look for understanding what might be a transition from actual racing to virtual racing. Ah, John. Yes. A word on, on Haggerty there. I met McKeel Haggerty in 2012 when the REVS program first came to Stanford. The changes that Haggerty have put in place were discussed. And Haggerty's change has not just come along in the last couple of years. Haggerty have felt for some time that the hobby was changing and because of the way the people involved in changing the hobby. I guess I'm trying to say that the Haggerty, you know, I saw McKeel Haggerty speak a couple of years ago at a conference and, and at that time he talked about how he wanted to get 6% of the population to be a member of Haggerty's Driving Foundation. And talking with people afterwards, apparently that 6% number, that's the number of members the NRA have, percentage of the, the population. And the feeling is, amongst people at Haggerty, maybe I'm speaking out of turn here, but reading between the lines, I think Haggerty feel, wow, if we can get enough people to sign up, we might be able to have the same political power that the NRA have, and that really augurs quite well for the future of, of our hobby. And with Haggerty, what I would, would say is look at how they are buying up every single conference, every single motor racing event. They seem to want to own the old car space. And for a time, it seemed like a really good thing. And only in the last year or so have I begun to think, wow, do we want McDonald's on every street corner? Or did we quite like the mom-and-pop diner that is what car shows are at the moment? Do we really want it to be commoditized and packaged in the way that you said? So I think, I think the Haggerty point is a really interesting one you've raised there, James. Yeah, I agree. And their message is very overt, and it's across media and various ways of expressing it. One, that there really is a kind of uh, sleepy interest among younger people. They just don't know it. And two, that bodes very well for the future, and we're, we're going to you know, fan the flames. It's a big bet. I was at the same conference. This was in Allentown, I think. And uh, I happened to sit next to him at lunch, and he had pronounced several times already at that meeting how young people really cared about automobiles. And everything I knew said the reverse. So I pushed him a bit. Well, what's your evidence? He either didn't have any, or it was so proprietary he wasn't going to tell me. But I did wonder, you know. And then they began making all these huge investments, going public on the stock market and so forth. So yeah, Haggerty's a very cool. Maybe the Haggerty shadow will throw itself over our gathering and we'll come back to it in various ways today and tomorrow. Anyone else? 
One thing I've noticed, especially in the younger generation, the teenagers to the mid-20s, a lot of them seem to be more interested in playing the video games and social media and that kind of thing. But I noticed that, uh, at least in my family, those that do that and their friends are bordering on obesity. I think, what's, what's going to happen when you're 40? Do you think that has anything to do with, you know, they just want to sit around and play games. They don't want to move, maybe walk the dog, and that's it. I'm not an expert on, on obesity, but I've observed uh, anecdotally some of what you've said. I mean, my interest would be if they're playing games all, all the time, does that lead them to do a similar activity in so-called real life? Or is real life not so interesting and they'll just stay with the virtual experience? Yes. Are you going to speak for the younger generations? <laughs> you know that I am because I look around and I'm thinking, I'm one of the younger people here. Yes. How, much, how many of us are going to keep showing up if every time we do we get told, get off your phones? Okay. The phones are a way we communicate with people we went to school with. There are ways I communicate with other alumni. It was actually one of the main ways when I was working in Hollywood I got jobs, was uh, a secret Facebook group for people who went to my film school, uh, sharing jobs and that sort of thing. So I don't think the online marketplace, I don't think it's actually going to replace in-person stuff. I think it is in addition to. You wanted a hard time, so I'm going to say it. The fear of, oh my goodness, they're going to get rid of actual racing because there's digital stuff now sounds a lot like an older generation having basically fears that will be unfounded in the long yes. term. Well, that's well taken, but I yeah. disagree with you. Yeah. Um, I certainly agree with you, the first part of your claim, that being digitally engaged doesn't mean you have no life. People talk about telepresence. We all live remotely in some, some way now. It's inescapable. And I don't mean to make a moral judgment about any of that. But I do think, for some of the reasons I tried to sketch, and we've heard some, I think, supporting comments, that racing in particular might be at risk, and that one way of solving the problem is to move almost entirely into the virtual realm mm. with these more limited ways of doing dressage when you can't ride a horse to your job. You know? So I think those are two different observations. And, and I agree with you, there's a real, there's generational ignorance, because many of us old people are not hip to new technology. We don't use it in our everyday lives. And that leads to fear and other things. I agree that's a problem. And just one follow-up on that. I do sure. just want to distinguish. We're talking about the hobby of racing. And I think sometimes when we talk about young people in cars, what your earlier point well taken that sometimes we're talking about automobility versus actual interest in cars as a hobby. Yes. And I do agree that my generation is not interested in commuting with cars. We're interested in building a world in which we can commute in other ways, either sure. digitally or through mass public transit. But I think the interest in cars as a hobby is there. I'll just say that. Well, that's another discussion. What, you know, if, if I like to go to races, is that a hobby in the same way as if I'm building, I don't know, model railroad track things, you know? I think it's different. I just published something recently about trying to conceptualize what it means to be an auto enthusiast. And hobbyists are one kind of model where you might think about that. So I think you're on the path to something interesting. I don't have a race car, but I do drive a sports car. I don't know, is that a hobby? Um, well, not to belabor this, but again, point well taken. Thank you. So being part of the younger generation, I think I kind of speak for a lot of us that are involved in racing and have race cars and love this hobby. 
we would much rather have our hands in an engine bay and working on something in person and actually driving a car compared to sitting inside all day. Sim racing, you don't get the same adrenaline and the same experience of actually driving in person and getting to keep the sport alive. So, But you could have both. I mean, you could do this sort of vintage car racing on the side, small scale, nothing like Formula One. That could, that could still exist. And then you could do sim racing at the same time. Again, they're not mutually exclusive. This is such a divisive topic and we talk about it a lot on our show and I'm on the younger side of the generation just crossing into my 40s and the point that's missed here and something that we address is how to get the younger crowd into the hobby there's two sides of the hobby there's the collector and classic car side as well as the motorsport side and there is an intersection of the two right vintage race cars etc but the point that's often overlooked when we kind of turn down and look at the younger crowd is the economic side of this Those of us that are in our 40s are at our peak earning potential. We have the discretionary income to start investing in classic and collector vehicles. However, when you look at the larger market, the older vehicles, let's say the cars from the 50s, I'm not going to go back to the pre-war cars, they're extremely expensive. We have been priced out of that market. So it's difficult for us to get into the hobby. So what are we looking at? As a 40-year-old, I'm looking at cars from the 90s. These are cars that were often just passed over. From a design perspective, they're marshmallows on wheels, right? They're very round. They're just very plain, mundane, etc. So you have to kind of consider what our generation is looking at. If you look further down the scale, what are these guys over here looking at? They're looking at cars from the mid to late 2000s. They're not looking at the 50s cars. Most of us, even in my generation, are barracuded, mustanged, and Camaroed out. Those cars are $100,000 a piece now. So what am I going to buy? the V6 Camaro that was available five years ago. That'll be my next race car. I look to my daughter's generation, you know, much younger, not even 10 years old. What is she going to be driving at 18? The cars that are coming out right now. Because you put the drivers behind the wheel of vehicles that are about 8 to 10 years old. So you need to look at these generational gaps alongside of the economic buying potential of the hobbyists. So racing you then quintuple that because it's even more expensive. So that's the thing that I think is missing from the larger conversation. I think car collection has two functions. One is an investment. And the other is, well, for fun. And, and you know, you drive a car occasionally, as you, which I think is what you're describing. So if you buy that there are these two functions, I would say that neither of those is hostile to the argument that I'm making. Those would be examples of these little corners of material primary experience when professional scale racing can no longer be sustained. Thank you. That took us down a few alleys that we weren't expecting, didn't it? (laughs) This episode is brought to you in part by the International Motor Racing Research Center. Its charter is to collect, share, and preserve the history of motorsports, spanning continents, eras, and race series. The center's collection embodies the speed, drama, and camaraderie of amateur and professional motor racing throughout the world. The center welcomes serious researchers and casual fans alike to share stories of race drivers, race series, and race cars captured on their shelves and walls and brought to life through a regular calendar of public lectures and special events. To learn more about the center, visit www.racingarchives.org. 
This episode is also brought to you by the Society of Automotive Historians. They encourage research into any aspect of automotive history. The SAH actively supports the compilation and preservation of papers, organizational records, print ephemera and images to safeguard, as well as to broaden and deepen the understanding of motorized, wheeled land transportation through the modern age and into the future. For more information about the SAH, visit www.autohistory.org. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gummy Bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.